give millions of people in same-sex and interracial marriages the certainty, dignity, and respect that they need and deserve. By the simple act of tolerating them. That is not equal. That is not respect. There's something about day-to-day life as an LGBTQ person that most straight people just don't get. We have the potential to live lives just like the ones straight people live, but the reality of our world right now creates a fundamentally different life experience. Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Greg Gordon. Singapore sodomy repeal comes with a marriage poison pill, the U.S. Senate advances the Respect for Marriage Act, and heightened threats cloud the lives of queer youth. Those stories and more this week because you found This Way Out. I'm Tanya Kane Perry. And I'm Alan Tiamo. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the two weeks ending December 3rd, 2022. Activists in Singapore are celebrating the repeal of Penal Code Section 377A finally. However, the victory of their 15-year campaign to end the British colonial-era criminal statute against sex between men comes with a caveat. At the same time, Parliament amended the city-state's constitution to nullify any court ruling that opens civil marriage to same-gender couples. During the November 29th parliamentary debate, Home Affairs Minister Kay Shamugan explained that the government sought what he called a balance to uphold a stable society with traditional heterosexual family values, but with space for homosexuals to live their lives and contribute to society. Brian Chung of the LGBTQ advocacy group Uga Chaga told Reuters it was a historic moment, while adding that LGBTQ couples and families also have the right to be recognized and protected. Lawmakers can still change Singapore's marriage laws at some time in the future. Today, that future seems to be distant. There's a silver lining to a Tokyo District Court's decision to uphold Japan's constitutional definition of civil marriage as exclusively heterosexual. The November 30th ruling went on to acknowledge that the basic human rights of LGBTQ families suffer without legal protections. Attorney for the plaintiffs, Nobushito Sawasaki, told reporters, this is actually a fairly positive ruling. He's bolstered by the judge's specific suggestion that something must be done about the lack of legal cover for queer families. Although their marriage equality laws had failed, one plaintiff identified as Katsu told The Guardian, parts of the ruling gave me hope. Regional courts in Japan have issued opposing rulings in marriage equality cases. The conservative federal government has firmly resisted any change to national civil marriage laws. With its newly installed and reportedly pro-LGBTQ Chief Justice D.Y. Chantrajud at the helm, India's Supreme Court heard two marriage equality cases on November 25th. Lawyers for one of the plaintiff couples cited a previous Supreme Court decision protecting the rights of interfaith couples. They argued that the same rights should be extended to same-gender couples. 
In the second case, plaintiffs argued that denying civil marriage rights to gays and lesbians violates two articles of India's constitution. The High Court ordered the federal government to file its response to those arguments within a month. Prime Minister Narendra Modi's administration has repeatedly resisted challenges to the marriage laws in lower courts. Government lawyers warned the Delhi High Court last year that opening civil marriage to same-gender couples would cause complete havoc with the delicate balance of personal laws in the country. Russia's silencing of anything publicly queer is nearly complete. Parliament's upper house voted unanimously on November 30th to expand the 2013 law that banned propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations among minors. The lower house approved expanding that law to include all ages a week earlier. Now anything that promotes or praises same-gender relationships is prohibited, and saying out loud or in print that those couples are normal is forbidden. The No Promo Homo Bill also criminalizes the dissemination of propaganda that promotes pedophilia and lumps it together with gender identity and transitioning. It covers books, films, television, theater, and advertising. Violators face hefty fines. Non-Russians can be jailed for up to 15 days or deported. Political scientist Ekaterina Schulman told Reuters, People, authors, publishers, just people will think twice before even mentioning anything related to LGBTQ. President Vladimir Putin is expected to sign the bill into law despite being preoccupied with his criminal war on Ukraine and the protests against it. The government of Belgium plans to introduce a ban on conversion therapy early in the coming year. State Secretary for Gender Equality, Equal Opportunity and Diversity Sarah Schlitz made the announcement in mid-November. In spite of its LGBTQ welcoming reputation, Schlitz noted in a press release that a ban on conversion therapy was sadly missing from our legislative arsenal. A growing number of countries have outlawed practicing on minors the widely discredited therapy that claims to turn queer people straight through counseling and or prayer. Belgium's government plans on across-the-board ban. Offenders would be jailed for up to two years along with a significant monetary penalty. Licensed therapists could lose the ability to practice for up to five years. Secretary Schlitz said, The ability to be oneself and the freedom to live as one wishes is a fundamental principle of our society that must not be compromised under any circumstances. Western Australia Premier Mark McGowan is in agreement, saying that conversion therapy undermines the fundamental value of personal dignity and has long-term negative impacts on the health and mental health of LGBTIQA plus people in our community. He announced on December 1st that his government would sponsor legislation to criminalize the bogus practice and, like Belgium, it will apply to adults as well as minors. The Labour government pledged to do so ahead of state elections last year. McGowan's announcement comes on the heels of a scandalous parliamentary inquiry into accusations of abuse and mistreatment of patients at the Esther Foundation. The investigation into the residential Pentecostal-linked rehab center for women near Perth detailed allegations of multiple sexual assaults, forced faith-based conversion therapy, and even exorcisms to banish supposedly queer demons. The group Ending Conversion Practices WA responded that it looks forward to working with the McGowan government 
to ensure legislative reforms are informed by the lived experience of conversion practices survivors. Two other Australian states are advancing LGBTIQ equality. Northern Territory lawmakers approved amendments to existing anti-discrimination laws on November 23rd. The changes prevent employment discrimination based on sexuality, personal attributes, or individual religious beliefs, and apply even to religious institutions. Ahmad Sa'ir Mod Sofi of the advocacy group Rainbow Territory told reporters, everyone deserves to live free of discrimination. This legislation means that no workplace, including religious schools and organizations, can discriminate against LGBTQI plus territorians. The new legislation comes into force in 2023. Queensland will consider a bill to remove the reassignment surgery prerequisite for changing the gender marker on a trans or gender diverse person's birth certificate. Attorney General Shannon Fentiman introduced the measure on December 2nd calling it an emotional and historic moment that I was proud to share with the many trans and gender diverse advocates in the gallery who have tirelessly fought for this change. Finally, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has relaxed its guidelines for blood donations from men who have sex with men. Antiquated rules rooted in the height of the AIDS pandemic banned all blood donations from gay or bisexual men. But science has once again forced the FDA to revise its guidelines. Previous advances allowed blood donations from sexually active men who'd been celibate for one year and gradually whittled down to three months. Blood donation screenings have by now become highly sophisticated guardians against infection if the donor is HIV positive. The issue has been whether to determine donor eligibility based on sexual orientation rather than on behavior. According to a report in the Wall Street Journal this week, the agency is now finalizing an individual risk assessment questionnaire for all prospective donors. An FDA spokesperson told the newspaper that as of early in 2023, men who have had anal intercourse with a new partner in the previous three months will probably be asked to wait an additional three months before donating blood. Sarah Kate Ellis of the queer advocacy group GLAD called the latest relaxation of restrictions overdue. She said that activists will not stop advocating for the FDA to lift all restrictions against qualified LGBTQ blood donor candidates. That's News Wrap, Global Queer News with Attitude, for the two weeks ending December 3rd, 2022. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappell, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Alan Tihamo. Stay healthy. And I'm Tanya Kane perry Stay safe. It was a reminder for our community that violent hatred is still out there that there are people who truly want to harm us. I do hope, however, that some good can come out of this. Queer Kids Under the Gun, later in the program. How can I be sure In a world that's constantly changing How can I be sure Where I stand with you 
The U.S. Senate passed the Respect for Marriage Act on November 29th with a bipartisan vote of 61 to 36. As Pacifica's Mark Maracle reports, it was judicial pressure that put the bill on the legislative front burner. The bill has gained steady momentum since the Supreme Court's June decision that overturned the federal right to an abortion. The ruling included a concurring opinion from Justice Clarence Thomas that suggested the Supreme Court's 2015 same-sex marriage ruling could also come under threat. Wisconsin Democrat Tammy Baldwin, the first openly LGBT person elected to the U.S. Senate, said she wanted to recognize the millions of same-sex and interracial couples who made the moment possible by living their true selves. But she said many also fear that their right to marriage could be stripped away. The Senate has the opportunity to put those fears to rest and give millions of people in same-sex and interracial uh, marriages the certainty, dignity, and respect that they need and deserve. The legislation would not force any state to allow same-sex couples to wed, but it would require states to recognize all marriages that were legal where they were performed and protect current same-sex unions if the Supreme Court's decision were to be overturned. It would also clarify that religious organizations would not have to perform same-sex marriages or lose their tax-exempt status or other benefits for refusing to recognize them. Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee was one of 12 Republicans to vote for the legislation. He rejected the notion that there's any threat to same-sex marriage, but said that religious organizations are finding themselves hauled into court for, quote, living out their faith. He said the legislation was a positive step protecting everyone's religious freedoms. In our pluralistic society, we must be willing to compromise and adapt so that we might live peacefully, peaceably with one another. In that spirit of compromise, let us ensure that we're protecting families, both traditional and same-sex families, and that we are protecting the right to believe as we wish and live out those beliefs without government interference. I believe we can do both. In fact, I know we can do both. Democrats were determined to move quickly, while their party still holds the majority in both chambers of Congress, to send the bill to the House of Representatives, where it must pass, and then to President Joe Biden's desk. I'm Mark Miracle. Although the original House bill posed no threat to religious freedom, the amendment offered by Senator Mike Lee made it possible for fellow Republicans like Wyoming Senator Cynthia Loomis to vote for it. For the sake of our nation today and its survival, we do well by taking this step, not embracing or validating each other's devoutly held views, but by the simple act of tolerating them. And that, Madam President, explains my vote. The Respect for Marriage Act may be a milestone for some, but to James Obergefell, it's one small step. His Supreme Court case made marriage equality the law of the land, and he recently lost his bid for a seat in the Ohio State House. He told CNN, The fact that there could be people in 30-some states across the nation who are unable to get a marriage license and get married in the state they call home 
that is not equal. That is not respect. This is about kowtowing the people who want preference for their religion, their interpretation of their particular religion in the public sphere. And that is not religious freedom. Andy Hum and Ann Northrup of Gay USA assessed the process and the politics that led up to the Senate vote. They had a vote on uh, Monday uh, for, uh, for cloture on the bill, and it took a long time, and we got a little nervous, but it did pass. It needed 60 votes. It passed 61 to 35. So as we tape on Tuesday, there's, they are debating uh, the bill with amendments. And that may be what took a little extra time on Monday was figuring out a scheme on how to propose and vote on the amendments because the right wing is quite adamant that they're going to go on the record as doing every little thing they can to protect their religious freedom. Well, the Heritage Foundation spent a million dollars over the weekend on ads during NFL games and college football games. Uh, trying to derail the bill and lying about it, uh, saying it would allow religiously affiliated schools and nonprofits to be sued, which it doesn't, uh, and investigated by the IRS. None of this stuff is true. The bill itself, uh, as amended in the Senate, though does allow nonprofit religious organizations uh, to refuse, for instance, services uh, of solemnization or uh, celebration of same-sex marriages. Um, but it doesn't allow a nonprofit that is not religiously affiliated to, to do the same kind of discrimination, which is, I think, what the right wing wants. But the fact is that I don't think any of this comes into effect, really, unless a Burgerfell is uh, overturned. And these right wingers are the ones who've been saying all along that this whole Respect for Marriage Act is unnecessary because the Supreme Court is not going to overturn Obergefell or Windsor. And so their fighting tooth and nail here is to justify their existence, to show their constituents and funders that they are willing to go to the mat for these principles. But it's it's all performance. And I think we're going to end up in the same place we were with the Supreme Court faced right. with the decision making about how much to allow so-called religious exemptions. The Supreme Court is still in a position to do whatever it wants to do, and cases are working their way up to the Supreme Court. House approval of the amended bill and President Joe Biden's signature are expected to turn the Respect for Marriage Act into law post-haste. The Supreme Court is actually hearing our religious freedom versus LGBTQ rights case as we speak on December 5th. Next time on This Way Out, we'll see if Ann Northrup and Andy Hum's Gay USA Crystal Ball was as accurate as it usually is. Silence in the court. The court's in session. Silence in the court. The court's in session. Silence in the court. The court's in session. Court adjourned. Our listeners support This Way Out in many ways. By subscribing to our e-newsletter. Email us at info at thiswayout.org. And through your financial contributions to our program. As 2022 comes to an end, please help make This Way Out's holidays happier. More information and a link to give are online at thiswayout.org. Thank you. Once again, I hang my head to cry.
The U.S. Department of Homeland Security warned this week that the LGBTQI plus community is a target in the country's ongoing heightened threat environment. That's the kind of environment the queer youth of Outcasting Overtime have been learning to live with from the 2016 Pulse Massacre to the recent Club Q mass shooting. This is Outcasting Overtime from Media for the Public Good, creator of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Jamie. On this edition from July 2016, Outcaster Brianna reacts to the massacre at Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida, and how her reaction prompted her to reflect on the different realities that straight people and LGBTQ people occupy. There's something about day-to-day life as an LGBTQ person that most straight people just don't get. Many LGBTQ people live in a state of heightened awareness and sometimes even fear. A lot of straight people just don't realize how different that can make our lives. They don't normally stop to consider how it affects us to grow up and live in a world where heterosexuality is the norm and where homophobia is commonplace. A lot of LGBTQ people say that we're just like straight people, but we're just not. We have the potential to live lives just like the ones straight people live, but the reality of our world right now creates a fundamentally different life experience. In the early days after the Orlando massacre, much of the mainstream media didn't even mention the LGBTQ identities of many of the victims. Instead, they focused on gun policies and a possible connection to ISIS. Much of the mainstream media left out the fact that the nightclub was a gay nightclub, that this was possibly an act of terrorism toward the LGBTQ community. When I woke up on June 12th and read that there had been a mass shooting in Orlando, Florida, I didn't really think too much of it. I felt the typical sadness that another senseless act of violence had been committed and that lives had likely been lost. The sense of sadness became a sense of horror when I learned just how many had been killed and injured, and then it became fear when I heard just where the massacre had taken place. Learning that the attack was on the gay club Pulse made this more than just another shooting. This was personal. This senseless act of violence targeted my community, people like me. I have a friend who attends college in Orlando, and he's been to Pulse a number of times. I was scared to call and ask if he was okay, because what if he wasn't? What if he didn't answer because he was in the hospital injured? Or worse? He let me know later in the day that he was fine, that he wasn't at the club that night, and I can't describe the sense of relief I felt. He was alive and he was okay. But in the hours and days that followed, I found myself falling back to thinking about how it could have been him. I have so many friends in this community, so many people I care about, and this massacre brought back the ever-present knowledge that there are people in this world who want to intimidate us and stop us from living our lives as LGBTQ people. There are people who want to hurt us. There are people who want to kill us. It could have been any of my friends in that club. It could have been me. 
This is a reality that I and many LGBTQ people live in. The need to filter everything we say, every reaction we have, in order not to provoke an unwanted reaction, influences so much of our daily interactions that it becomes almost automatic and we hardly think about how much of our existence we have to stifle. In order to be safe, we often have to give up expressing our passions and beliefs. We lock up everything that might put a target on our backs. I'm not surprised by people like the Westboro Baptist Church anymore. It hurts, but it's not surprising. The Orlando Massacre was a wake-up call. It was a violent reality check for many of us. This was so much more lethal than the typical homophobia I had previously experienced. I was cruelly reminded of just how much work is left for us, even with same-sex marriage legal nationwide. The battle is not over. I've come to understand that living in fear is something we've grown used to. It's like white noise or TV static, constantly there even if you tend to tune it out. It's something I've adapted to. It's second nature to me now to always be aware of where I am when I go places with my girlfriend. A laundry list of questions runs through my mind before I even try to hold her hand. Are we on a street late at night? How many people are around? What's this area generally like in terms of acceptance? Is there a group of drunk guys outside that pub we have to walk past? Many street people don't understand all the small ways homophobia affects LGBTQ people in our day-to-day -day lives. They don't see how there are more issues than marriage equality, that there are societal issues that color how we live. I had to explain to a straight guidance counselor that not all the kids in a middle school GSA would be able to openly tell their parents about the club. I had to explain to a grown woman that for some children, telling their parents that they are involved with the LGBTQ community can put them in emotional and even physical danger. She was genuinely surprised, and I was reminded of just how naive people could be about this. The Orlando Massacre was a horrible, horrible atrocity. It was a reminder for our community that violent hatred is still out there, that there are people who truly want to harm us. I do hope, however, that some good can come out of this, that straight allies realize that the fight is not over and that we still live in fear of what might happen to us. I hope that this helps put our lives into perspective for the many straight people who don't understand. Thanks for listening to Outcasting Overtime from Outcasting Media, creator of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Outcasting Media is a production of Media for the Public Good, based in New York. Our executive producer is Mark Sofus. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about outcasting, watch outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to outcasting and related content. You can also find outcasting wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jamie. Thanks for listening. Everybody's got a pulse.
Thanks for choosing This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. Some program material this week came from Tanya K. Perry and Alan Tiamo, produced by Ryan DeShazer, from Pacifica Radio's Mark Miracle, from Ann Northrup and Andy Helm of Gay USA, and from Outcast with Jamie and Brianna, produced by Mark Sofus. The Rascals, Peter Tosh, and Melissa Etheridge performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This way out acknowledges the support of KOOP 91.7 FM, Community Radio for Austin, Texas, and from listener donors Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors help make this program possible. Thank you. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email info at thiswayout.org, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For associate producer Lucia Chappelle and the entire This Way Out crew, I'm Greg Gordon. We all thank you for listening online at thiswayout.org or wherever you get your podcasts and on KZAX, Bellingham, Washington, 2CCC, Gosford, New South Wales, WODO, Norfolk, Virginia, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned. Ah.